Good morning. Well, imagine you had something really important that you wanted to tell someone. You wanted to share a significant part of your story. So you call up your friend and say, Hey, I have something heavy on my heart that I really want to share with you. Can we get together sometime? Of course, your friend says. And a few days later, you meet up at your place to talk. You begin to open up your life and transparently share more of your story. When all of a sudden you notice your friend's eyes sort of drift over your shoulder and begin looking at your pet parrot, Polly, sitting in a cage behind you. You continue talking, but soon it becomes more and more evident that your friend is no longer paying attention to you at all, but instead is entirely focused on your parrot. In fact, at one point, your friend actually gets up and walks over to the cage and begins interacting with the parrot while you're in the middle of talking. Do you know what I mean? You say. Yeah, 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 he says or she says. This parrot is amazing. It's incredible. Polly, can you say, hello? Hello? A week or so later, you overhear your friend talking with others about your visit together, saying, yeah, I went over to Polly's house the other day and and Polly said this, Polly's house? Later one evening, your phone rings. It's your friend. You pick up. Hey, how's it going? Good, good. Is Polly there? Oh, yeah. The next thing you know, your friend is writing little songs about Polly. Polly is a parrot, I know. Polly is a parrot who says hello. And even publishing little books about Polly. It got weird really quick. And your friend gets so caught up in all this that you never really did have that talk. You kind of faded into the background, eclipsed by Polly. How would you feel about that? If I was that friend, what would you want to say to me? Carrie, you focused on the wrong thing. You missed the point. This morning, we will be walking through the biblical story of the flood. Most people, even if they weren't raised in the church, are familiar with the story, even before it starred Russell Crowe, which, even if you've seen the movie... Um, you might not necessarily be familiar with the biblical story. So, there's all sorts of little songs and, and books about it. And when you listen to those songs and look at those books and even search Google images for Noah's Ark, what do you find almost always front and center? It's all about animals and a big boat and sometimes rain. It's about an arky made out of barky and animals and twosies and kangaroosies, roosies, that's the end of the story, and everything was hunky-dory. And please don't get me wrong, we need children's songs, we need salty, we need children's books. These are good things. We need to get on their level. But what happens when that remains all it ever is to us? When it remains on that level for all of our lives? Like the friends looking only at the parrot, someone could say to us, you focused on the wrong thing. 
you miss the point. There are times when Zoe and I go outside, and I stoop down, and I, I call to her, Zoe! And she turns around, and she starts smiling really big, and laughing, and running towards me, and I'm like, baby! And but all of a sudden, she runs past me, and I notice that there's like a squirrel behind me. That can easily happen with this story. We can be chasing squirrels and miss the one who is seeking to show us more of himself and beckoning us to be enfolded in his protective care. We can be looking at the parrot in the background and miss the one who is actually front and center sharing his heart with us. More than a story that teaches us about rain, about animals, or about a big boat, this is a story that teaches us about God. There may be so much about the details that we know about this story, but there is so much more to know about the God of this story and our relationship to Him. So like the friend, we are invited to come, sit, and listen as God shares more of Himself with us and what that means for our lives. We have an appointment with God. Through this text, God has something significant to tell us about Himself and ourselves as well. Exactly what that is will be our focus as we walk through our passage this morning. It stretches from Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, to chapter 8, verse 19. So we begin in Genesis chapter 6, verse 9. Please join me there if you're not already. Genesis chapter 6, 9. As we saw last week, at the beginning of chapter 6, humanity was spiraling drastically downward. God was grieved. He was sorrowful over the depths of corruption that he saw. But then in verse 8, at the very end of the previous section, it, it turns on a positive note. There was one man who found favor or grace with God. His name was Noah. Our passage continues. 6-9 These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. These verses continue this contrast between the surrounding world and Noah. Look at the threefold description of Noah found in verse 9. It's like with each one it ratcheted up a notch. He was righteous. In the Old Testament, this is someone who sought to live a life that honored God. They sought to do what was right. In other words, this is a person who seeks to live a godly life. Righteous. And then blameless. Blameless means that looking from the outside, he didn't participate in anything actively wrong. If you were trying to accuse him of of something, if you were trying to make a political ad against him, you would have a hard time finding anything. There wasn't dirt on him. He lived a conscientious life. And then it says he walked with God. In the Hebrew, these words are actually reversed for added emphasis. It says, with God. Noah walked. The only other person in the Old Testament described in these terms is Enoch, 
who we learned about last week. And like Pastor Ralph pointed out, this expression speaks of togetherness. It describes a daily close-knit relationship with God. So righteousness, righteous is a pretty broad term in the Old Testament, but blameless is only used of a handful of people. And then walked with God is used of even less. Two persons. In other words, if you met Noah on the streets, you would come away saying, wow, that guy was the real deal. Later on, Ezekiel uses Noah as an example of one of the most godly people in all of Israel's history. Don't get me wrong, none of this means that he was perfect or sinless. He lived on this side of the garden. He was a fallen man. We will see that without a doubt next week. The point is that by God's grace, he was a godly person in an ungodly time. He was a bright light in the darkness. To put it simply, his life stood out. Noah's life stood out. For the Israelites who first heard this, there was a message here. As they dwelled among the surrounding nations, they would face tremendous pressure to live just like them, to succumb to the ungodly influence, to conform to the world, to compromise their purity and integrity and devotion to God. But amid this pressure, Noah's life sends a message to resist the constant pull, to be different, to be a light, to seek to honor God even when everyone around you is not stand out and the message is the same for us today believers everywhere and every believer is called to stand out Lisa and I drove up to Michigan last weekend we got out of the car late one evening and the first thing that we noticed were the stars they just popped out in the evening sky and the whole reason is the contrast That's what makes them visible. That's what makes them stand out. You and I are called to stand out. It's not about how we look. It's not about how we dress. It's about how we live. By God's grace, to humbly and firmly and consistently hold on to godly character in all realms of life. At work and at school, it's about not giving in to compromise, even when it requires the courage to be the only one like Noah. It means not participating in conversations that tear people down, even when it causes us to be left out. It's about having honesty in our work dealings and purity in our dating. It's about having integrity when there are so many messages telling us to indulge every impulse, inclination, and appetite. It's about not being caught up in the relentless chase for more. But it's not only about what we don't do. It's also about what we decide to do. It's about showing unconditional selfless love to anyone and everyone, not waiting for others to earn it, but simply giving it away because we have it to give. As another example, as a pastor, I'm truly grateful for the privilege of walking with people during hard times. And the settled trust in God that I have witnessed firsthand, even during hard times, even when it's hard won and not pat answers, shines like a star. The settled trust in God 
during hard times shines like a star. It's a gracious gift from God. Also, the election results this past week have brought about a a raw mix of emotions among our nation and among Christians. Let's remember during these days that we are called to stand out as being people who listen, who love, and who pray. People whose citizenship is in heaven and whose hope is not bound to any political party but to one risen Savior. People who steadfastly live according to the unchanging values of the kingdom. People who are united not around a donkey, not around an elephant, but around a lamb. To use an expression from one of my personal heroes, John Perkins, people who are not culturally captive, but who stand out. We are called to wisely and humbly and lovingly show a different way. We're called to stand out. Noah stood out in contrast to the world around him. It says twice that the earth was filled with violence and three times that it was corrupt or corrupted. It's worded in a way that recalls chapter 1 of Genesis. See, in chapter 1, humanity was told to fill the earth with the goodness and glory of God. But here, it says they fill the earth with violence. Filled. Filled. It's like everywhere you look, violence against a person made in the image of God is taking place. And notice verse 12, chapter 6. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was... When did we last hear that expression? In chapter 1, when God saw the earth, and behold, it was very good. And now it says, God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. The effect is to make us see the great depths to which everything had crumbled and deteriorated. This was about broad scale, all flesh, every person, absolute corruption. Humanity was giving full vent to the propensity for evil. In essence, they were devouring one another. So God treats Noah like a friend and tells him what he's going to do. God informs Noah that he's going to make an end of all flesh. He says at the end of verse 13, Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. The original language gives us some insight here. The word destroy is actually the same Hebrew word that's translated corrupt those three times in the previous verses. Destroy and corrupt. The implication is that the human world was destroying itself so that God God gave them exactly that. As one commentator put it, God decided to destroy what was virtually self-destroyed already. Their destruction was the fruit of their destructiveness. So in verse 14, God tells Noah to build an ark. The size of the ark was a bit longer than a football field, and its width was just under half of a football field. The width of a football field, it was about four stories tall, made of three decks. It was huge, but not humanly impossible to build. Many people point out that Noah, and most likely his three sons, could have taken up to 100 years 
to build the ark. People lived longer during this time. It says that Noah was 500 years old at the end of chapter 5 and 600 years old at the start of the flood. But we don't know exactly how much time elapsed from the end of chapter 5 and this verse here. Regardless, it did not happen overnight. Using realistic calculations, it's been estimated that this would take a few decades to accomplish. A few decades. And I can imagine that something this big did not go unnoticed by the public. It was set before them. And 2 Peter 2.5 calls Noah a herald, a messenger of righteousness. In other words, he was a witness. But during all those years, decades probably, it had no impact on the surrounding world. Jesus tells us in Luke 17 that during the days of Noah, the people kept living how they were always living. Up to this point, God has only told Noah to make the ark, but not why. In verse 18, he makes it clear. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your son's wife with you. Noah would be saved along with his family, not because Noah earned salvation, but because of his relationship with God based on grace from the beginning. That's how it always is. God made a covenant with Noah. He committed himself to preserving he and his family. And he instructed him to also take aboard two of all sorts of living creatures to preserve the created world. And notice how Noah responds in verse 22 of chapter 6. Noah did this. He did all God commanded him to do. Or as the NLT puts it, Noah did everything exactly as God had commanded him. And this becomes like a refrain we keep hearing throughout this passage. Jump down to 7, verse 5, chapter 7, verse 5. And Noah did exactly as the Lord had commanded him. Verse 9, as God had commanded Noah. Verse 16, as God had commanded him. In fact, in chapter 8, verses 15 through 19, the very last thing we see in this passage is God giving a command to Noah and Noah doing exactly that. And then the passage closes. Notice that we don't even ever hear a word from Noah throughout this whole passage. We just see him simply obey. Immediately obey. It reminds me of a particular time in my life when I was convicted of this. My junior year of college, I went to Ecuador with a group of about 20 or 30 students to study for a few months. And the group was composed mostly of people who didn't know Jesus yet. After a few weeks, God placed in my heart to start a Bible study. But I had all these questions like, like, how would I get it started? How would I do it? Where would it be held? Would anyone come? What would I study? And how would people respond? Over time, these just became excuses to put that prompting out of my mind and put it off. Weeks and weeks went by until pretty much the final month when I said yes. And this secular school ended up giving me the central meeting place of the campus to use as a space. And on the first night, I sat in this room and I was blown away as pretty much every single student from the trip came walking through those doors. And the same thing the next time we met. 
And then classes ended, and the final two weeks we left for Peru. And I didn't know where we would meet. We were in different hotels, and it came to the very last day of the trip. And most of the group was planning on partying hard that night. It's kind of a last hurrah. But after deliberating for a while, I said yes to God that morning and went around table to table at breakfast and invited people to come to a Bible study that night. I didn't know who would come. I remember praying in another room just before and then walking into the room where we met and it was packed. Pretty much everyone was there, filled in this small hotel room. It was nothing but an act of God. We went through passages on our need for personal trust in Jesus. And then we literally made a big circle around the room, held hands, and went around praying. And that's how the trip ended. A bunch of college students huddled up in a room, crying and praying. I was so thankful for how God moved. So, so thankful. I couldn't believe it. And yet at the same time, I learned a lesson. I was reluctantly obedient. And I came away wanting to grow in saying yes to God without dragging my feet so much. It's about simple obedience. Noah's example of simple obedience challenges us. Is there something God has placed on your heart to do and you know it because it agrees with Scripture, but you've been putting it off? I want us to take a moment to think about that. I know I have a takeaway from this that I'd love to share with anyone afterwards, downstairs during fellowship time, after worship. That's a great place to talk about stuff like this. But is there something for you as well? Let's ask God for simple obedience, for a heart that says yes to God and courage to move forward. Or, is there something God is calling you not to start doing, but to stop doing? Is there an area of your life He has been placing His finger on for a while, but you have been putting it off? Confess it today. Get help. In 1 Corinthians 10.13, God promises to show you the way out. You are not stuck. If you say, yes, God, I will obey, He will lead you out. He gives you His Spirit. He gives you His community. He gives you grace. You're not stuck. Noah's simple obedience challenges us. At this point, the ark is constructed. At the beginning of chapter 7, God tells Noah to enter the ark with his family and the animals. He further instructs Noah to take seven pairs of clean animals instead of one. Clean animals are animals that can be eaten or used as sacrifice, which is why you would need more of them, because if you get off the ark and make that sacrifice, then those animals would be extinct. Right? And then, then God announces, after decades, the flood will come in one week. I just imagine Noah taking a deep breath. One week's time, the flood will come. Seven days later, the rain began. And the narrative highlights the exact day that it happened, which shows that this is treated not as a once upon a time in a land far, far away kind of story, 
but as a historical event that took place in real time. We pick up in verse 13. Verse 13 of chapter 7. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind and all the livestock according to their kinds and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind and every bird according to its kind and every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered male and female of all flesh went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. We watch as Noah and his family finally make their way into the ark. The Lord causes the door to be sealed behind them, which is a tangible reminder in these dark moments that he is committed to them, he is with them. Outside the ark, the rain is pouring down like a waterfall. It's no ordinary rain. It was a tearing open of heaven and a tearing open of the earth so that the waters rushed together. And it continues for 40 days and nights straight. The ark gradually rises as the waters surge below, increasing in depth, first above the earth and then to the mountain tops, and then above the mountains. The rain stopped, but the waters continued at that level for 150 days. Everything was covered. And life outside the ark was no more. Verse 21 gives us the final report. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. There's no pleasure in this. God says repeatedly in the book of Ezekiel, for example, Ezekiel 18.23, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord. Any pleasure. And not rather that he should turn from his way and live. Creation was undone. And all throughout this scene, the language repeatedly echoes back to Genesis 1 giving us a sense that this is the undoing of creation. This is Genesis 1 in reverse. The waters that were separated in chapter 1, above and below, are brought back together. The dry ground that had appeared disappears. The life that was brought forth is brought to an end. By the close of chapter 7, the all-encompassing corruption of the earth has been met by the all-encompassing undoing of the earth. The great flood, the deluge, is finished. There are descriptions of a great flood in other ancient writings, but that doesn't trouble me because if an event this massive did in fact take place in human history, wouldn't you expect other people to write about it? But here is a major point of contrast. In other writings, the flood is brought about because humanity was so noisy that one of the gods could not sleep. And I'm not trying to exaggerate or belittle in any way. This is what it says. Here's an excerpt. Uh, Here's an excerpt. And Leel heard their noise. And he addressed the great gods. The noise of mankind has become too intense to me. With their uproar, I am deprived of sleep. And so he brings about the flood. In contrast, the God of the Bible does not act out of annoyance, but acts out of righteous judgment. 
We need to know that human corruption, evil, and injustice ultimately answers to God. That's what this is about. There is a final judge of the earth, and it is God. We could pause here and debate about whether this was a global flood or a local flood, but we would be missing the point. This is about God. He is the righteous judge of the earth. And I know this is hard and maybe unpopular, but God, if God never makes us uncomfortable, then we have probably made Him in our own image. Our society does not like the idea of judgment, but I can't stand before you and pretend that God is not a judge. I can say that I wouldn't rather have anyone else be judge of the earth. I'm glad it's not me. And I don't mean to insult you, but I'm glad it's not you. I'm glad it's not any one of us in all the world, past, present, and future. It's because we can only see this much. I'm glad it's the one who knows the beginning from the end. The everlasting to everlasting, who knows everything, who sees everything. He knows our hearts and knows our names. He's our creator. We don't have to fear that an unrighteous judge will ascend to power because God cannot be overthrown. And he cannot be bribed or corrupted. He is not detached or uncaring either. He so loves the world. His love and His judgment aren't at odds within Him like at one time it's love and at another time it's judgment. He doesn't turn one off and turn the other on like, now I'm judgment, now I'm love. They're always held together within Him at all times. His love is just and His justice is loving. I can say that I wouldn't rather have anyone else be judge. And I can say that I wouldn't rather have there not be a judge. Imagine a universe where there is no punishment for evil, where it's not held in check. We would have destroyed ourselves long ago. It is for our good that there is a judge. And evil does not win the day. And exploitation and violence does not have the last word. And evil will not ultimately prevail. There is a final judge of the earth, and it is God. That's what this is about. Yet that's not all there is. Chapter 8, verse 1 begins with these words, But God. And the whole narrative shifts. But God remembered Noah. He kept his covenant. He kept his promise to the one who received it. We watch as the as the waters gradually subside over the course of seven months and the one who and what has been undone gets renewed it's like a new beginning and once again the language gives us a sense of re-walking through Genesis 1 the wind from God blowing over the waters echoes the beginning of Genesis where God's spirit was hovering over the face of the waters and the waters are separated once again and the dry land appears and the dove that comes back with a freshly plucked olive branch tells us that vegetation is sprouting forth. This is Genesis 1. And then after a full 12 months and 11 days since the rain started to fall, 
God says this to Noah. Let me just pause for a second. God says this to Noah. Go out from the ark, you and your wife, and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. Where have we last heard this before? It's a renewal of Genesis 1. Noah and his family leave the ark and step into a renewed life. The writer of Hebrews brings out that this is because of Noah's faith. In other words, he believed God's word of judgment and his promise of a way for salvation. And God had provided a covering for them. They passed through judgment and stepped into a new creation. You see, there is a final judge of the earth. And none of us could ever stand before him and say, I'm completely innocent. There's no corruption in me. Not even righteous, blameless Noah could. But he himself provides a covering for those who take hold of it by faith. Those who believe him. The Apostle Peter in Peter in First Peter three looked at all this and saw a picture of Jesus. He is the covering that God provides. He is the answer to how God can be both judge and savior. At the cross, God judged sin. And at the cross, he paid the penalty himself. That everyone who trusts in him might go free. Like those in the ark, we are covered by him. We are brought into a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And the apostle Paul says, we are hidden in Christ. We are clothed with his righteousness. We are covered. It reminds me of a story I once heard about a mother who lived in a remote village. She was carrying her small baby down a long stretch of road one winter night when a blizzard struck and she became disoriented. She lost track of the path and was unable to find her way back to the village. The people later tracked her down. Her baby was alive because she had completely wrapped the child in all her warm clothes. But in so doing, she had lost her own life to the cold. There's no greater love than this. We too have been clothed by Jesus. We are wrapped in his righteousness. We are covered by him. He emptied himself and gave up his life to give us life. But he did not stay in the grave so that we could live forever with him. There's no greater love than this. By faith, you are hidden in Christ. God looks at you and sees all the goodness of his son as if it's yours. You are and always will be covered. That's what God does. That's what this story is about. He is the final judge of the earth. Yet he himself provides a covering. And that is yours through Jesus. Take hold of it. Bask in that grace and because of it, like Noah, we seek to live lives that stand out and say yes to God in simple obedience. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth.